0: All right, I want to start off by saying good afternoon, everyone. If you don't know me, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you all to Zoe Community Church, particularly if you are newer or it's your first time. Welcome. We're glad you're with us, especially here on the Super Bowl afternoon. We will get you out of here in time for kickoff, but we're glad that you're joining us today. Let's turn together in our Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 21. And as you turn there, I'm going to be real honest with y'all about today's opening illustration. All right. Based on themes we'll be talking about today, I'd really wanted to find an inspirational story to open with that has to do with the idea of rescue. With someone who was overwhelmed and helpless, someone facing insurmountable odds, someone who was at the end of themselves, hoping in someone else for deliverance. And I kept finding, honestly, these really great stories about being trapped in blizzards and between boulders and in mines and in caves. And as I mentioned these things, you're probably already thinking about those old news stories of these particular events. But based on what happened this past week, the last thing I wanted to do was be insensitive to the tragedy that is happening in Turkey and in Syria as a result of the earthquakes on Monday. I didn't want to tell a great hopeful story in light of the nightmarish reality that tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are living through at this very moment. And I did not want to diminish their losses by trying to compare them to the things that we here safe in Texas feel like we're overwhelmed by in our lives. And so instead of telling one of these inspirational stories or tragic stories, I think it would be fitting for us to start off thinking through these things through prayer joining together in prayer, starting at this very moment, considering this somber reality and uncertainty that is going through the the minds and hearts and lives of so many out there on the other side of the globe. And so will you bow with me as we begin in prayer and as we pray for Turkey and for Syria? Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this day and we are humbled because we need to profess and continue to proclaim that you are God and you are good and you are in control of all things. And we look at a tragedy like these earthquakes and aftershocks and sometimes even as believers we tend to have our minds wander in the same way that the world sees this as God cannot be true or real or good. And so we pray, Lord, that you would Help us to humble ourselves before you and to begin with the bedrock foundation that you are God and you are sovereign and that you would shape our perspectives from there. But we do pray for the reality that so many are living through right now in sorrow and fear and uncertainty. Or this was the most devastating earthquake in recent history. There are so many who have lost their lives And so we continue to pray for the recovery efforts, for those who are still alive under the rubble that they might be delivered. We pray for safety and strength and for health and for those who are conducting the searches. We pray for those who are mourning and grieving, that you would meet them in their time of loss and that this would not be an event that drives a wedge between them ever knowing you or trusting you or hoping in you but that in some way, shape, or form, that is a mystery even to us as Christians, you would use this to draw people to you. Lord, through the broken families, for the children who have been orphaned, we pray for your provision, for your grace and your love, your mercy to extend to them. We pray for the rebuilding of homes and lives and livelihoods which could take years or decades. We pray for the governments who are running it all and also for all the the turmoil there as well and the dissension and disagreement. And we pray that somehow in all of this, your gospel would be proclaimed, that your kingdom would be furthered, and that your name would be shown as great. We pray that you would be the source of hope for all people as you have been for us within the walls of this church. And so we pray, Lord, that your name would be made holy in all of this. We pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you would provide every felt need, physical and spiritual, for those who are hungering. And we pray that you would forgive us and this world of our sins and trespasses against you. And Lord, we pray that you would keep us from temptation and from evil, but to ascribe to you glory, the power and the kingdom, Lord, is all yours. And so we submit ourselves this day to you and to your word. We pray that you would open our hearts now to hear and understand and to do what you call us to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, believe it or not, we are quickly coming to the end of our study in 2 Samuel. The study of both books of Samuel, actually, which has taken us a little over two years. And last week we kicked off this final section, okay? Pastor Jesse explained that this section from chapter 21 to the end is this non-chronological kind of recap, an epilogue, if you will, that takes place after the narrative of David's kingdom has ended in chapter 20. This is more of a review or an assessment of David and his kingdom. And last week, as we kicked it off, we kind of saw the negative side, at least from a human perspective, of how God takes covenant so seriously, right? That he judges those who break his covenant visiting Israel with famine for breaking their covenants, both with him and with the Gibeonites. Well, today's passage shows us the positive side, the powerful and miraculous outcomes of being under God's covenant, particularly the way that God's people experience his divine blessing, protection, and deliverance. And it will be in verses 15 through the end of the chapter. And in it, we'll find a collection of Israel's victories that happened under David. Alright, they're not a representative sample of his military endeavors. It's actually an intentionally curated list. Because what you'll find as we read through it in just a second is that all these stories feature the same enemy, the Philistines. And in particular, in particular, they all describe Israel's encounters with giants. Yes, giants. It may sound like fairy tales and legends, but this is the true historical word of God. So follow along as I read aloud from Verse 15 to the end of chapter 21. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi-Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibbecai the Hushathite struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan the son of Jer-oregim the Bethlehemite struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he was also descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. This is the word of God. We'll look at today's text in three parts as we do. First, we'll check out the four battles. Then we'll take a closer look at the situation with King David. And finally, we'll pull back for the God's eye view of it all. So this is our breakdown, the four, the fear, and the faithful. So let's get into it. First, the four. The four, which shows us the strength of the kingdom, the strength of the nation of Israel under King David. We just read four stories, all similarly structured. The first one a little bit longer than the rest but they were kind of repetitive, right? They were uh, four vignettes of four Philistine battles, four giants, four heroes raised up, four slayings against all odds. You could say that this is kind of a highlight reel of Israel's best plays. And it opens in verse 15 with David going down into battle against the Philistines with his servants. And so we'll start here with the servants. We'll look at these mighty men first. These are his faithful followers, his men of war, Remember, for a large part of 1 Samuel, David was continually accompanied by 600 men who went around him as, around with him as he was fleeing from Saul. And this group included his nephews, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, these three brothers that formed a part of a more elite group known as his mighty men. Now, in a few chapters, we're going to look at the list of the 30 some mighty men. But for now, we just need to make note of the four of these mighty men who are highlighted as the victors in today's battle. So first, the hero of the first story is Abishai. Now, he's the only one we really know anything about. He's been around since the middle of 1 Samuel. He's one of the nephews. He's also, we will find, the chief of the mighty men. You might also remember all the way back in 1 Samuel 26 when Abishai is the one who proved himself as the only one willing to volunteer to go with David by night into Saul's camp, even into his tent, right? And Abishai was the gung-ho go-getter who wanted to kill sleeping Saul right then and there in the tent, but David didn't let him. This Abishai is the one who swoops in as the giant slayer in this story to save David's life. The second mighty man you find in verse 18, Sibekai the Hushethite. And honestly, we don't really know much about him. We don't even know much about Hushethites at all. The Bible only mentions him here and in Chronicles as a mighty man and one of David's 12 commanding officers. The third, Elhanan, and the fourth, Jonathan, in verse 19 and 20. Jonathan being another nephew of David's, but through his brother, They're only mentioned here and in the list of mighty men, both in Samuel and in Chronicles. And interestingly, the Bible doesn't tell us really anything else about them at all. But perhaps it's enough to know that they were counted among the mighty and that they slay giants. But more is said about the four giants. So let's turn to them now. Who are these warriors of unusual size with unusual weaponry or an unusual number of extremities even? Well, there's a a phrase repeated four times in the text used to describe them. They are descendants of the giants. The last of the four times is in verse 22, the summary statement. These four were descended from the giants in Gath. All right. These men are called the Rephaim. Okay. The Rephaim. They're the descendants of Rapha. And the Rephaim are an ancient race of Canaanites who are famous for their size. In fact, you see them as early as Genesis chapter 14 and 15 as one of the people groups who are are inhabiting the land of Canaan that was promised to Abraham. In Deuteronomy, the Bible is explicit that the Rephaim are a people so great and many and tall, so notorious, in fact, that the other nations, the other enemies of Israel, have a name for these Rephaim. The Ammonites call them the Zamzumin, and the Moabites call them Emim, which means the terrors. To give you an idea of their size, one of the most notable Rephaim, who ultimately became king, uh, King Og of Bashan, is on record in Deuteronomy 3.11 as having slept in an iron bed four cubits by nine cubits. That's just six inches shy of two California king mattresses placed end-to-end. So this is a giant, scary dude. Or maybe a smaller guy who likes a big bed. (laughs) Nevertheless... In our text, those guys are the scariest, we see the defeat of these four imposing giants, right? Ishbi Benab, Saf, Goliath the Gittite, and this unnamed man of great stature and many fingers. But right off the bat, before we go any further, we need to pause and take a little brief detour, a little excursus here in the middle of the sermon, because there's actually a big issue with giant number three. Who did Elhanan kill in verse 19? Goliath the Gittite, Goliath from Gath. And this introduces a serious textual issue that we need to address. In fact, the ESV study notes say that this verse has caused, quote, endless controversy. So we need to address this because here at Zoe, if there's one thing we're about, it's endless controversy. Just kidding. You know, if we're at Zoe and the one thing we're about is the truth of God's word, we believe it is inerrant. And so we need to address this. It's a problem. The problem is Goliath the Gittite from 1 Samuel 17 is long dead. He was beheaded by David when he was a youth under Saul in his first battle against the Philistines. Now, some people will look at this name then, Goliath the Gittite, and even look at his weapon, right? The spear like a weaver's beam, which is exactly the terminology used of the first Goliath, and say, well, this must be the same guy. And so they try to reconcile the two with all sorts of far-fetched explanations to make this the same Goliath. For example, maybe Elhanan is another name for David. After all, they're both from Bethlehem, hmm? right? So people think that's a pretty good idea. Or the theory that David never even faced off with Goliath that this is the true passage here Well, a man named Elhanan's victory was later attributed to David to build up his lore and his legacy and to rouse up the people of Israel under the new king now the problem with these two theories is that they both make 1 Samuel 17 into a lie they're both saying that 1 Samuel 17 is untrue and it is kind of strange because it's in the same book (laughs) It's just two separate scrolls, but part of the same book. Is, is he contradicting himself? Now, instead, I think it's actually a rather easy solution to simply say this is a different Goliath, right? It's not unlikely that two people from the same country have the same first name and at their size, probably to carry the same type of weapon. In fact, some people even conjecture that Goliath is not a name, but a term or a title like Pharaoh that can be applied to multiple people over time. And so that's easy enough for us to stomach and explain. So where is the endless controversy? Well, let's turn ahead to 1 Chronicles 20. 1 Chronicles 20, move past 1 and 2 Kings, then 1 Chronicles, so just three books along. The problem is introduced when we read the parallel passage. So 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5. And the Hebrew here is almost identical. It says, And there was again war with the Philistines, And Elhanan, the son of Jer, struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Now here's the problem. The texts directly conflict, right? They both cannot be true. Is it Goliath or is it Lami, his brother? It cannot be A and not A. Does that mean there is a contradiction in the Bible? Is there an error? Now hear me carefully, and this is why we're talking about it today. The answer is... Yes. Okay, now before you, before the lightning strikes, before you clear the room and come at me with pitchforks, I'll clarify. Okay, At Zoe, we hold to a high view of God's word, right? If you've been here for any amount of time, you know that. We strive to center our church always on the word of God. We preach it, we study it, we sing it, we pray it, we apply it, we live it out. We want to know it and obey it, right? But to be clear, when we're talking about the inerrancy of God's word, We specifically are talking about inerrancy only in the original manuscripts. That is the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, the precise words that were originally inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and written down by human authors the first time that that is God's inerrant and infallible word. So to be clear, when we read our English Bibles and our multiple translations, these specific words and versions are not divinely inspired and therefore are not the inherent, inerrant words of God. Does that make sense? But here we don't have a translation issue. This is not an issue of Hebrew going into English funny. Here we actually have a transcription issue, and that's another whole can of worms. You see, copying the text within the original languages, human errors were made along the way. The Hebrew and Greek manuscripts we have today are all copies of copies of copies of copies as scribes of old faithfully pass along the scriptures by painstakingly reproducing by hand every letter, every word. There were no printers, no photocopiers. And because humans are imperfect and imprecise, people make mistakes. And faithful scribes thereafter copy that mistake in their faithfulness. And if you've played the game of telephone, where you whisper a message down a chain of friends, you know how this happens. So the question is, how can we trust the Bible at all? How do we know that any of these are the words of God if they've been muddled by by scribal errors and things like that? Well, thank God that there is a way and a whole scholarly field devoted to recovering the original manuscript, the original text. You see, sometimes this recovery comes through discovery, where finding ancient papyri can confirm or correct what we already have. But mostly, recovering the original text comes from analyzing the thousands of existing copies of biblical scrolls and fragments. And when you compare these differences between copies and you know where and when each of these copies came from, you can actually recreate the telephone structure, the tree, and find out where particular issues were introduced And so, we can actually derive much of the original text by studying these manuscripts. And in fact, today, we live in an advantageous time to have access to such accurate scriptures. You know, the Dead Sea Scrolls were only discovered 75 years ago. And computing technology has advanced this whole analytical process. So, actually, praise God for his faithfulness in preserving his word for us today we have an advantage over, over even like the reformers in having accurate biblical text, the original text. Isn't that amazing? So your faith in the Bible should not be undermined today. When all is said and done, more than ever do we have an extremely high degree of confidence that we know a largely complete and accurate picture of the original text. Now, granted, there are still a handful, a small number of contested texts that remain, and thank God that none of those discrepancies changes the message of the Bible or the message of the gospel or who we understand God to be. No fundamental issues there. Today's text is one of those places, and it's not a big deal. Did a scribe mess it up? Probably. In fact, not to shake you more, But there was already another error in this text. Did you catch it when you were in Chronicles? It's Elhanan's father. Right? It's either Jer-Oregim in Samuel or just Jer in Chronicles. And the interesting thing about Jer, or sorry, about Oregim is that Oregim is the word for weaver in weaver's beam. That appears only nine words away. So, What is super likely to have happened is that this scribe accidentally copied a word off the wrong line, perhaps. Oops, just a slip of the pen or of the brain. Maybe his newborn had kept him up the night before. Maybe he was distracted by a Twitter alert on his phone. In any case, the accidental addition of the word origim here makes scholars okay with the idea that this unfortunate scribe also accidentally dropped the words brother of later on in the line. And it even makes sense if you consider that after inserting an extra word The words in his copy aren't aligned by a bit and then later by dropping some words they get lined back up again so in any case we can thank God that here in this instance he has graciously given us in 1st Chronicles a way to clarify for us what happened that's the grace of God we don't look at 1st Chronicles and say it's a discrepancy we say oh there's a, a, a slight error here but God has given us this other text that corrects our understanding so to be clear this is not David's Goliath but Goliath's brother, who was killed by Elhanan. All right, so I know that was a lot, but I know you can handle it. I know this is Zoe. I could have just told you it was his brother, that it was his brother. But hopefully, this was helpful or at least interesting. But back to our text: the giants. Look at how the Bible describes them. Their imposing size, their impressive weaponry, their incredible features. Right, The first, Ishbi Benob, has a spear weighing 300 shekels, or seven and a half pounds. The brother of Goliath's spear is like a weaver's beam. And then check out the last giant in verse 20. And there was, again, war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 a number. This giant is interesting, right? He's unnamed, but the text goes out of the way to point out these unusual, unusual features of his physical condition. He has a deformity that today is called hexadigitation or polydactyly. Six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot. And this isn't just the stuff of legend like the Princess Bride. There's actually a real medical thing. I had to look it up because I was studying. And I read that as many as one in 500 babies today are actually born with polydactyly. But the thing is usually that last finger is so underdeveloped or small that they just surgically remove it at birth pretty easily. And no one ever really knows. But in rarer cases, the extra digit is fully formed with bone and tendon and muscle and functional. And it's been documented that it can really provide an advantage with dexterity. And there are videos out there of people who are better athletes and musicians and day laborers because of their extra fingers. There was a baseball player for the Phillies, actually, uh, I think in the 90s, who had 12 fingers. And there's one guy I saw where he ties his shoelaces with one hand. And if the sermon isn't as good as it could be, it's because I was watching a lot of six-finger videos (laughs) on YouTube this week. But these giants are emphasized as being superhuman, all right? They're bigger. They're stronger. They're better. They have more things. But there's another way they put themselves over other men. It's not what they look like. It's not the weapons they carry. It's not their body parts. For this last giant, at least, it's what he does. It's his spirit, his attitude that manifests in his actions. Verse 21, he taunted Israel. This nameless man with the extra fingers taunts Israel. And I think it's supposed to remind us of Goliath, the Goliath in First Samuel 17. Because what did he do day and night for 40 days? He came out taunting Israel. Challenging the armies whether anyone was man enough to come face off against him. And his catchphrase was, I defy the ranks of Israel. And the young David had latched onto this, right? He went to the people around him and then he went to King Saul and he asked both of them this, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, David understands that Goliath's taunt isn't just a reproach for men and against the people of Israel but a challenge in the face of the true God. The taunt against the people of Israel is actually against the God to whom they belong. And that's why when David finally faces Goliath, he proclaims to him, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is... A God in Israel. You see, the point is not that the giants are larger, stronger, or better equipped. The point is that there is a God in Israel, and that all the earth may know it. The point is that Israel is God's people, and the covenant of God belongs to them with all its promises and all of its blessings. In a nutshell, as Israel receives God's deliverance again and again in the story, they are experiencing the covenant promises of God. His blessings, they're his chosen people to whom he will be true. They are serving under his chosen king. Look at verse 22. The passage ends saying that the giants, quote, fell by the hand of David and his servants. And I know we didn't talk about this yet, but if you're paying attention as I read it earlier, you'll notice that here it mentions David by name, and it relegates the four true heroes, if you will, to just his servants. But why is this kind of borderline insulting? It's because of the five Israelites mentioned in this text, David is the only one with no kills. David is the only loser. He's the only one who almost died. And we'll talk about this in a minute. And yet these victories at the very end are still attributed to King David. Why? It's because he's the king. They're still done in David's name. It even says by his hand, even though he didn't personally strike down any of these giants. And this is significant because the intent is not to portray David as weak but to prove that his kingdom is strong because the promised presence and power of God remains with his people. God is making good on his covenant with David to make him a great name, to give them rest from their enemies and to establish his kingdom and his throne forever. And so before we move on, ask yourself, Am I one of God's people? Am I counted among His children? Am I under the promises of His new covenant, experiencing His presence and His power in my life? Or have I pitched my tents outside of that camp, living in rebellion against God, relying on my own strength? If you're here and you're not a Christian today, I urge you to hear this, that you can live to, to be on top, striving to be the best you can, better than other people, with all your big abilities and achievements and accolades and extra fingers and toes, things to boast in over other men. But at the end of the day, you'll still just be human. Just the biggest, baddest brute of a human, but merely the best among all the broken see, if there's one thing we can learn from the giants, it's this. If we don't fall before the Lord, we will fall before the Lord. You hear what I'm saying? Last week, Pastor Jesse urged us to bend the knee before Almighty God because he is the covenant keeper. He's right to judge all covenant breakers. And so we either fall down in submission to him now or we will fall in the end by his wrathful judgment against us. One way or another, every knee will bow either in submission or in subjugation. And if we don't fall before the Lord, we will fall before the Lord. Every God taunter will be defeated. And so for us today, our only two options are defiance or worship. Defiance or worship. You are either for God or you are against him. And God is either for you or he is against you. And so the question is, whose side are you on? Who are we living for? The second verse of the hymn, A Mighty Fortress, exhorts all of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, with these words. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Do you ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, the Lord of hosts, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Brothers and sisters, God will win in the end. Our covenant-keeping God will judge all who are against him, no matter how powerful they are. And our covenant-keeping God will bestow covenant blessings on all who are with him, no matter how weak they are. And speaking of weakness, we come to our second point, the fear, the fear. That one was the longest by far because of the uh, excursus that we did. But here in the fear, we see front and center the weakness of the king the weakness of the king. You see, what was the greater context for these individual battles? It's laid out for us in the first and longer story in verses 15 through 17. So back to the top, if you'll rewind with me, there was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants and they fought against the Philistines. All right. All four of these wars are against the Philistines. Something to note is David had fought many different nations during his reign. But he most frequently engaged with the Philistines, most frequently by far. They were Israel's enemy number one. And this preceded David's reign too. From day one under King Saul, he was fighting the Philistines. When he went up against Goliath, Goliath that was against the Philistines. To claim Saul's daughter as his bride, he killed 200 Philistines. And in addition to the five recorded skirmishes with the Philistines, 1 Samuel 18.30 says, As often as the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, David had success. So there was an uncounted number in, in the scriptures of battles against the Philistines, and David won every one. And that was just when Saul was king and David was doing his own thing. After David became king, we've seen three more recorded wars with the Philistines, and there were doubtless more. So here's the thing to note about David's countless battles against the Philistines. David always won. Against this particular enemy, the books of Samuel always say that David struck with a great blow or had success or struck the land and took the spoils, either subduing the enemy or causing them to flee. God was always with David against the Philistines, giving them into David's hand. And this is important for us to know because that's what makes what we read next in verse 15 so shocking. Pulls the rug out from under us. It pulls the rug out from under Israel. Here's the twist. End of verse 15. And David grew weary. David got tired. David was spent. And this isn't necessarily old age. Okay. We've established that our view on this text is that this is the epilogue. It's not chronological with the rest of the book. The commentaries who don't take this view simply say, well, that's what happens when you get old, right? It's the end of David's reign. He's an old man. He's just kind of given in. I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, I'll explain in a minute why I think this particular battle probably took place before Second Samuel 10. But nevertheless, David grew weary. Now, this is not the picture that we like to have of King David, our rugged hero warrior David, right? It's not a side of him that we want to see. It's not a side of him that his men ever wanted to see. David, the great undefeated King David, the Goliath killer, the one who killed lions and bears with his bare hands, God's chosen king. How can mighty David grow tired? Just sling another stone, man, and call it a day. Verse 16. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword... Thought to kill David. Now there are clear references to Goliath here, just to remind us of that old victory. Right? Ishbi Benob like Goliath boasts a heavy spear, three hundred shekels of bronze, and the weight of Goliath's spear had also been highlighted for us, six hundred shekels. Ishbi Benob also has a sword like Goliath, but unlike that old story, here David is languishing. For whatever reason, this time David needs help. He can't do it. Has God abandoned him? Not at all. Because we also learn that David is not the only giant killer in Israel. Just in the nick of time, verse 17. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. So who swoops in at the final second but the commander of his mighty men, Abishai. As it turns out, someone else can kill giants too. And if you thought that Avengers Endgame was inspirational, the moment Captain America got Thor's hammer... That's exactly this, but in real life. No one knew this was possible. Just out of left field from off screen. This guy comes in, giant killer number two. Who knew? And he saves the day. And so it seems like a happy ending. But for this passage to hit us fully, we need to realize how much it highlights David's humanity. We need to read this as the story about the time David almost died. The story about the time when David was almost ended prematurely, where a different giant almost offed our hero, where David's kingdom was almost lost, dare we say where God's covenant promises almost failed. How can we say that? Because this is the exact concern that David's men go on to express. Verse 17, Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. All right, what is this lamp of Israel? This image embodies the very promise of God. The lamp represents God's covenant with David that someone from his lineage would always sit on the throne. The books of Kings and Chronicles use the same imagery of the lamp to say that God will always set up for David a son in Jerusalem to be a lamp before him. For example, that's why later on when Chronicles is chronicling the sins of David's son, King Solomon, and all the evil of the rest of the kings after him, it ends by saying... Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Second Chronicles 21. But here in the first generation, David's men are legitimately worried that this lamp might go out. They don't know how it's all going to play out. If David dies, They're concerned that David's dynasty promised to him by God is going to come to an end, that all hope in God's promises will be extinguished. So something serious is at risk, something more than just David's kingdom and his reign. What is at stake is the entire covenant that God had made with this man, their king, and that if he dies, the covenant hope will be lost. That's why they make this huge but really easy, frankly, decision. They don't ask him. They don't simply tell him. They swear to him on their lives and blood and whatever. No more, David. You cannot go out. You will not. You shall not go out with us again, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. To protect the nation, to preserve their hope in God's promises, they bench their team captain. They pull him out early to avoid an unnecessary season-ending injury. Now, what's interesting here is this. We do find that in Second Samuel at some point, David did stop going out with the army. Right Under Saul, David used to lead his men into battle all the time. And then as king, he continued to command at least three Philistine wars in 2 Samuel 5 and 8. And of those accounts, the Bible says, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Great. But then something changes. I mentioned chapter 10. Chapter 10 is where, for the first time, Joab and Abishai are the ones leading the army out against the Ammonites. And David only comes out later once Joab sends to him word that the victory is assured. Two chapters later in chapter 12, Joab again leads the fight first. And he summons David later on only after the battle has been decided. Basically, Uncle David is relegated to cleanup duty. That's chapters 10 and 12. And of course, you know, in between chapter 11, the Bathsheba affair. When you all know from verse 1 that King David was at home During a time when the kings are usually off to war and Joab and his mighty men, including Uriah, are off fighting in his place. In fact, David never leads his men to war again for the rest of the book. So while we can't be certain, I'd say it's quite probable that this passage today precedes chapter 10. Perhaps even explaining the whole setup of the Bathsheba story and everything thereafter. You guys know already how that led to Amnon and everything with Absalom there was some seriously tragic fruit that possibly was born from this decision to keep David at home. Because at the end of the day, David was meant to lead. David was the king. He was God's anointed. He was undefeated. God made his covenant promises to him. Was benching David the wrong decision? Well, it wouldn't derail God's plan, first of all. We know that. Nothing does but I think there is something to be said about the weakness of David and his men in their response to this situation. Yes, they were afraid. Yes, they were doing what they thought was best for Israel. Yes, they were seeking God's covenant. But a lot of hurt and heartache and future brokenness from sin happened because they let their fear overcome their faith. It is true for us as well today, I think, that a single harrowing event in our lives can shake our confidence and turn it into fear. Can it not? When we feel powerless and overwhelmed, it can truly shake our faith in the promises of God. I know some of you are going through really tough times right now. There have been a few new health scares at Zoe even in this past month, new emergencies. For some of you, it's been hard to keep your head above water financially. It feels like a bottomless pit. Or you're struggling in your marriage or with your family or in a broken and crumbling relationship. You're facing difficult situations at work or unknowns for the future, and maybe it feels like just yesterday you were doing fine. Things were going well, and suddenly everything has just been upended and turned, and you are wearied and spent and languishing. And these very real situations in your lives could throw us easily into fearful turmoil if we are trusting in the wrong king. It only makes sense. If our faith is in man, then when man languishes, so does our faith. If David loses and our hope is in him, then we fear. And every man will fail us and we will fail ourselves. But if our trust is in the Lord, there's no need to fear. Right Psalm 46 says, "Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Why? Because God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Or speaking of covenant, Isaiah 41.10, which God promises to his chosen people of Israel, and he says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Brothers and sisters, there is a purpose to our weakness and the purpose is not to lead us into fear. As we so often let happen. What did Paul say about his weaknesses in Second Corinthians 12? He said God's power is made perfect in his weakness. He says God's grace is sufficient for him. Paul boasts now in his weaknesses. He's content with his weaknesses. Why? Because that is how he and we come to experience the power of Christ. When we are weak, then God proves himself strong. Which brings us to our third and final point, the faithful. We had the for, the fear, and now the faithful. And here we see not the strength of Israel, not the weakness of the king, but the power of Israel's true king. Did you notice that God is not mentioned anywhere in this text? Not at all. And yet several truths about God are evident. First, for example, God is the ultimate deliverer. Right, He's the one willing and working behind it all. He's the one who promised David victory. And so when the leader is sidelined, God still fulfills his promise through others. In fact, it's against this backdrop of the king's humanity that God's divinity shines more brightly. David's weakness is to show God's strength. David's limitations push God's infinitude to the forefront. Do you remember the theme that we saw again and again going through the books of Samuel? The recurring idea has been, As the king goes, so goes the people. But this passage flies directly in the face of that principle. Here the king is down, but the people don't go down. Why? How do they press on victorious? It's because the true king is still at work. The human king's hand is spent and stayed. The divine king's hand is still working tirelessly. God is behind it all. God delivers David from Ishbi benob preserving his chosen king. Then God delivers Israel three more times, preserving his chosen nation. And we need to be awed by this. This is God proving himself. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you before today did not recall that there was more than one giant slaying in the Bible? Right, We look at the David and Goliath story, and we think of this as this one unique special event. We feature it in our children's Bibles and in our general cultural awareness as well. But here we've got it fourfold, back to back to back, and we don't know these stories. But lined up this way for us, we are shown that the Goliath victory was no anomaly. And even with David himself, the original victor, sidelined, Israel is still defeating giants. This was never about the greatness of David. Even 1 Samuel 17 wasn't about the greatness of David. It's about the greatness of God. David only ever slew one giant, but by God's power, Israel slew four more. Now here's a warning because it's easy, I think, for us to get desensitized to how incredible each of these victories is. It's easy to think of them as less than impressive because we become numb after hearing it repeatedly four times and we think, whoop-de-doo, there they go again, Israel defeating giants, just another Tuesday. Slaying a giant will always be an unusual thing. Don't get over that. Don't get used to the story. But understand this, the reason perhaps it should read normal to us is because God is always greater than the giant's. This keeps happening because God is still God. This keeps happening because God is still for his people. This keeps happening because God is still powerful. It keeps happening because God is still in the business of deliverance. God is deliverer. And second thing we see about God is that he won't just deliver his people, but he will do it again and again and again and again. It's the way this text is written. It's so repetitive. Verse 15, there was war again. Verse 18, there was again war. Verse 19, and there was again war. Verse 20, and there was again war. And again and again and again, a giant comes. And again and again and again, a hero rises up. And again and again and again, the giant is struck down. If there's a theme here, you all know it. It's again and again and again, repeated for us in such quick succession over these few verses that we don't miss this fact that this is not, after all, a highlight reel of Israel's greatest victories. It is a recounting of the faithfulness of God. God did it again, and he did it again, and he did it again. And what is that if not the steadfast covenant faithfulness of our Lord? Which brings us back to the lamp. You see, the people weren't just worried they might lose their king. right? I said earlier they were worried something might happen to that covenant that... If something happened to David, it would put the the promise of God to them in jeopardy. That's what the lamp is about, God's faithfulness to keep his promises. But they think no lamp, no promise, right? Disney movies are particularly aware of this desperation. They make it a trope, right? If the candle were to go out, the magic would end. When the last rose petal drops, the curse remains forever. When the clock strikes midnight, everything reverts back to the old, sad, and broken way. Israel can't afford to lose this hope, and truly we can understand that. But though this flame flickers and dims and threatens to perish, clinging to the lamp was never as important as clinging to the one who made the promise. The one who promised is faithful. The bedrock truth for us today is that God continues to be faithful, and he continues to be in the business of deliverance. And some of you really need to hear this today, that even when we come to the end of ourselves, God is never at the end of his promise. We've seen it again and again and again throughout Samuel. King David points us forward to the true eternal king, the promised son of David, Jesus Christ. And so finally, three truths about Jesus in this passage, and then we'll close. First, Jesus is our king who will not grow weary. Don't nitpick here. Jesus did get tired. He rested. He withdrew to quiet places to pray. We even find him asleep on a boat. I get it. But Jesus never grows weary, faint, or spent when it comes to completing the work that he came to do. You see, Jesus is God who humbled himself to take on the form of man in human flesh to live on the earth and even be tempted as a man in the flesh with every temptation we know, in every way that we are, and yet he withstood it all and never succumbed. He never grew weary in living that holy life of perfection that God demands of each of us that none of us could do, but he did. Jesus didn't tire as he prayed in anguish in the garden, sweating drops as blood, pleading to the Father to take the cup of his wrath away. He didn't yield it up. Jesus didn't give in, but he was beaten, whipped, mocked, and spat upon. And although he despised the shame of the cross, he went there silently like a sheep to the slaughter. And unlike languishing David on the battlefield, Jesus never needed saving. No one had to swoop in and save him from the cross because he himself refused to take himself off the cross. Even though he was goaded to do just that when people jeered, he saved others, let him save himself. No one would deliver him from the wrath of the father. Even he himself, and he could, but he didn't. He took it all the torment, the suffering, the crushing weight of God's judgment upon him for the sins of mankind, the agony of being forsaken by the Father, all this he bore to the bitter end, never to be saved or delivered from any of it so that he would become Savior and Deliverer of the world. Praise God that Jesus Christ did not grow weary. Second, Jesus is our deliverance once and for all. He's our deliverance. Under the new covenant, God no longer has to do thee again and again and again and again because he's done it once and for all. In the words of young David before Goliath, this day all the earth may know that there is a God and that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. And there at Calvary, the Lord saved us not by sword or by spear, but by a wooden cross. Dying there, Jesus delivered us once and for all from Satan's sin and death and its reign over us. And Hebrews 9.26 says, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. God's word is clear. We are all sinners who have rebelled against God, deserving of eternal death and God's just punishment. But on the cross, Jesus Christ became our deliverance once and for all, the perfect sacrifice upon whom God doled out all our punishment. He died in our place, satisfying the punishment our sins had earned. And thirdly and finally, Jesus Christ is the lamp that does not go out. Jesus is the lamp that will not go out. He is the lamp of promise, right? When it had appeared that this lamp had been snuffed out, extinguished by a gruesome cross and buried in a grave, what happened? On the third day, that light was reignited. A beacon shining more powerfully than ever, never to be extinguished again. Jesus was resurrected to life, and now he is alive, risen, and reigning. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to David. He is the lamp before God forever. The son of David who will eternally reign on the throne. In fact, when the book of Revelation speaks of heaven and the apostle John tells us his vision of the new Jerusalem, he says, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. Jesus Christ is our king who does not grow weary. He's our deliverance once and for all, and he is the lamp that will never go out. In Christ and in his new covenant, we experience his covenant promises. We cling to true covenant hope, and we anticipate his covenant fulfillment. And the greatest need, brothers and sisters, for anyone under the threat of judgment is the hope of deliverance. The good news of the gospel is that the God who rightly threatens covenant judgment is the same God who is the source of covenant deliverance. And so when we think about tragedies in the world today, in Turkey and Syria, or even as we look to our own desperate situations in our lives, our greatest desire should be that the hope of God's deliverance will be made known in us and through us to the world. We pray that God will spare life and save those who are trapped and overwhelmed and hopeless, literally and figuratively. And in addition to physical deliverance, we pray for spiritual rebirth and response to God. And the same is true for each of us here today. To all of us who have lost much, or to all who are lost, there is a great need for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God's grace and power may be shown in our weakness that all the world might see that there is a God and come to him for life. Jesus Christ said of all who believe, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And God makes good on all his promises. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you are our hope. Many of us will attest to that, that you should be, you ought to be our only hope. You've done everything that, so that you would be. And yet, when it comes to practical living, it's hard. We pray, Lord, that you would help us this day to trust in you for deliverance because we have seen your character. But we're not applying this text in the sense that there's giants in our lives we need to face or that there's battle after battle after battle in this tiresome world. But we come to this text seeing your covenant faithfulness to your people, and we thank you that for we who believe, by your grace and your work in Christ, we are under a new covenant. And so we pray, Lord, that for the hurting brother and sister among us, you would encourage their hearts, help them to experience and recognize covenant blessing your upholding, your powerful deliverance, that all the glory might be yours. Help us to praise you, even in the dark times, to look forward to what you are doing, that we would praise you all the more when we see the fullness of that picture. We thank you that we serve and love and worship a sovereign God who is in control of all our lives and all our circumstances. Help us, Lord, to give those things up to you, and we thank you most of all for Christ, our Savior, who did not grow weary, but went to the cross to deliver us, who paid the price, who despised the shame, and took all the pain and endured your wrath and suffered and died for us. Lord, forever we thank you for the great work of Jesus Christ and salvation. Lord, we praise you and we love you us to worship you now even as we sing, that you would draw out worship and adoration from our hearts and from our lips, that you would help us to also take the time if necessary to bow before you in confession and to express to you our our need and our lament and our brokenness, that you might again, as always, be our Savior. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.